The True Worship 7. The Father and the Son. By J. S. Blackburn. Chapter 7. The Father and the Son. At this point we must recall to mind the Savior's conversation with the woman of Samaria in John 4, in which is found his central teaching on worship. Hitherto we have lingered on verses 20 to 22. The worship in this mountain and at Jerusalem were by him compared and contrasted with that new worship to which he was directing her thoughts. For us also, in previous chapters, the systems of priesthood and sacrifice in which these two traditions of worship consisted have provided pictures by which, when illuminated by his Spirit, we approach an understanding of the true worship. Within the framework thus provided, several features of the true worship have become clearer to us. Nevertheless we must now return to that one great and simple characteristic which it is here the Lord's concern to present. Three times the later verses refer to this fact, that the true worship is the worship of the Father, and His quest is for such worshippers. The hour comes, when ye shall neither in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem, worship the Father. The hour comes, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship Him. In such words as these, the hour comes, the Lord Jesus introduces things which heaven and earth, men and angels, should stop to consider. Father, the hour is come, he said, when the hour of his cross drew near. The hour of the cross is past, though never to be forgotten. The hour in which we live is the hour in which the Father is seeking worshippers. The true worshippers worship the Father, and this we shall consider in some detail. But what of the Son, who uttered these words? What shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? In the following chapter of John's Gospel there is light on this question. The Father has made certain dispositions that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father which has sent him, John 5 verse 23. To the same effect is another passage which has already yielded us instruction, it presents the worship of heaven, where they say, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, be to him that sits upon the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever, Revelation 5 verse 13. Two persons are here distinguished yet connected as the joint object of heaven's worship. Indeed the purpose of this part of the vision is to show that the Lamb who was slain is now sharing the honors due only to God. He that sits on the throne is the subject of the Revelation, chapter 4. He is the Creator. The seven spirits of God ever burn before His throne. As in Isaiah's vision, the seraphim ceaselessly adore Him. By Him and for His pleasure were all things created. The person thus presented, although it is not the idiom of the Revelation so to name Him, is the Father. In chapter 5 there is introduced in the midst of the throne, and sharing the honors accorded to it, a lamb fresh from the slaughter. The person thus presented is the Son, and when, in the vision, they bring their worship to Him that sits upon the throne, and to the Lamb, they are fulfilling the divine imperative of John 5 verse 23, they are honoring the Son even as they honor the Father. What moves the dwellers in heaven to worship? It is the appearance before their gaze of the Lamb, bearing the marks of His passion, which leads them unerringly to worship the Father and the Son, and this should surely prepare us for the fact that the contemplation of Christ in the Lord's Supper, where the loaf and the cup are to his people as the marks of his passion, can only rightly lead to worship, the worship of the Father, and of the Son joined with him in the place of supreme honor. Returning to John 4, verse 23 is central to the whole study in which we are now engaged, the true worshippers worship the Father. 
First, let us notice the contrast intended by the introduction of this name. It is the real essence of the contrast between Old and New Testaments, between Judaism and Christianity. It must be obvious to all that the names under which God has revealed Himself to His chosen saints form a subject of the highest importance and interest. It is impossible to read the scriptures dealing with these names without seeing that they mark the stages of a progressive self-revelation of Himself by God, and that the knowledge of God imparted to the saints in the names themselves was in the highest degree strengthening, comforting, and sustaining for their faith. The key verses are Exodus 6 verses 2-3, And God spake to Moses and said to him, I am Jehovah, and I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, by the name of El Shaddai, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them, but. The account of the fuller revelation to Moses is found in Exodus 33 verses 18-34 verse 8, And, Moses, said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And Jehovah said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passes by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand, while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back, but my face shall not be seen, and Jehovah descended in the cloud, and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of Jehovah, and Moses made haste, and bowed his head toward the earth, and worshipped. Pondering these two quotations, it is plain that although each name when revealed was sufficient for the faith of the saints receiving it, there is nevertheless an immense accession of blessing and privilege associated with each revelation. The idea of progress is unmistakable. The revelation of the name of Jehovah was a great and glorious advance on the revelation of the name of El Shaddai, yet the narrative contains implicitly the fact that even this revelation was not final, Thou shalt see my back, my face shall not be seen. A difficulty is presented by the frequent occurrence of the name Jehovah in the Bible narrative prior to Exodus 6, and in particular by Genesis 4 verse 26, then began men to call on the name of Jehovah. This is true even of the Abraham story. These earlier occurrences of the name of Jehovah can only mean that Moses in writing the story used the name he knew without intending to imply that the name was known and understood in these earlier times. The name El Shaddai is introduced in Genesis 17 verse 1, and its meaning emphasizes the power of God for provision or destruction. The name Jehovah is proclaimed in Exodus 34 verses 6 to 7, and is a great step forward since it adds truth about the character of God. He is merciful and gracious, forgiving transgressions, but visiting iniquity. When, however, we come to the New Testament, these names are entirely superseded, and never occur except in quotations. They are indeed so far outshone by the revelation of the name which awaited no less an event than the coming of the sun, that like the stars in the sunshine they vanish from sight. God is one, and nothing made known in the earlier names is lost or absent from the revelation made by God the Son when He said to the Father, I have disclosed Thy name to the men whom Thou gavest Me. Neither the worship of El Shaddai nor that of Jehovah was the true worship. The true worship only became possible with the coming of the Son, revealing the Father, imparting His Spirit, and seeking those who would worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The word true is in itself a certain confirmation of the finality of the revelation of the Father. In this Gospel of John, apart from the expression the true worshippers, there are four examples of its use, the true light, John 1 verse 9, the true bread, John 6 verse 32, the true vine, John 15 verse 1, the true God, John 17 verse 3. In these examples the word signifies the substance in contrast with the shadow, the final rather than the temporary, the complete instead of the partial. 
In each case, what is of Israel, including John Baptist, and therefore partial, shadowy, and incomplete, stands in contrast with what Christ has brought, and in the last and greatest is the final and complete revelation of God as the Father in distinction from the partial revelations of Himself under His Old Testament names. This brings us to dwell on the content or meaning of the name of Father. In it is disclosed the last secret of the depths of God, never to be superseded, never to be outshone, for it is the light that shines in the eternal home of God. In this name of glory we learn, not only God's power, as in El Shaddai, not only His character, as in Jehovah, but the last secret, which is that His essential nature is a relationship of love. That relationship is primarily between the Father and the Son, but such a revelation offers the gift of relationship with God to men. Men are not to be only in covenant relations with God, but to as many as received Him, to them gave He the right to become the children of God, John 1 verse 12. It would be natural to feel astonishment at the fact that when, in the progress of divine revelation the hour has come to represent in a word, in a name, the essential nature of the eternal God, that word, that name, should be found lying at hand, and well known to men. There is no speech nor language where its voice is not heard. Even when the Holy Scriptures are to be translated into some barbarous tongue presenting all kinds of difficulty to the translator, the word required to represent the most profound of truths, the essential nature of God, the word Father is always familiar, always available, always understood. Further reflection enables us to see that such surprise is in fact inverting the truth. Known to God are all His ways from the beginning. He did not wait for the need to find the word. Ephesians 3 verses 14-15, in a less familiar translation reads, I bow my knees to the Father, of whom all fatherhood in heaven and earth is named. When God, as yet unrevealed, came to create man, he did so in his own image and likeness. An essential element in the image and likeness of God is that he implanted in man's nature a relationship which was the image and likeness of his own. In man's nature is written this relationship of love, fatherhood, and therefore he possesses the name to describe it. The same considerations apply to that other relationship of love which had a place in the heart and counsel of God, the man and the bride. The truth is that in these relationships and the names for them, established by God in the beginning, are the very patterns of eternal truth. It remains true also that the things of God knows no man, only when the Spirit came was the meaning of these relationships and names lifted into the new dimension. It is then consciously to the Father, by the Spirit, that the true worship is addressed by His children, and nothing short of this is the true worship. In Him is the source of that river of love which has flowed by Calvary. Bound up in the same bundle of life with the Father and the Son, the saints begin the worship which will never end. Where shall words be found of the quality and power to open the understanding and kindle the heart to a real involvement in this great matter? In a story of His resurrection, the Savior accomplished just this for His disciples. Then opened He their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures, Luke 24 verse 45, and His words made their hearts burn within them while He talked with them. In John 4 also we have been listening to His voice, and this is sufficient, if heard aright, to open our understanding and kindle our hearts in response to the Father's quest. Of his own also he says, I will declare thy name to my brethren, in the midst of the church will I sing praise to thee, Hebrews 2 verse 12.